Well, good morning, church family, and I'm so happy uh, that you're here, if you're here for the first time at Windsor Road, and um, Katie mentioned um, our vision as a church to be a life-changing community of authentic believers passionately pursuing Christ, and um, I'm so glad that uh, she led us in this last song that we just sang together. It's so beautiful to hear you sing, especially the lyrics of the art of losing myself in bringing you praise. The art of losing myself in bringing you praise. That touches on what we're going to talk about today um, because we're going to talk about one of the words in our church's vision statement, life-changing community of authentic believers passionately pursuing Christ. It's a word that has really kind of become a cultural buzzword. Uh, We hear about this word in politics. We hear about this word in business. We hear about this word in entertainment. We've heard it in mainstream media, new media, social media. Uh, It's why we like some actors and performers over others. It's why we like Jennifer Lawrence over Anne Hathaway. It's this word right here, this word. And it's become a um, new marketing tool for our consumer culture. It's the word authentic. Authentic, authenticity. Some of you say, but I like Anne Hathaway. Authenticity, vintage, real, genuine, original, heirloom. These days, consumers just aren't looking for product availability or product affordability or product dependability. These days, consumers are looking for authenticity. Authenticity. That's why we don't just drink Coke. We drink classic Coke. And we don't just want root beer. We want old-fashioned root beer. And this is why we just don't enjoy coffee. We want original roast coffee. See? It's interesting, isn't it, how this word has uh, morphed from a personal character trait to a product selling point. Authenticity. Authenticity. There's a book by this very title. Authenticity. What consumers really want. Listen to what co-authors James Gilmore and Joseph Pine wrote on the appeal of real. The appeal of real. Listen. Organizations today must learn to understand, manage, and excel at rendering authenticity. Indeed, rendering authenticity should one day roll off the tongue as easily as controlling costs and improving quality, for rendering is precisely the right term for what's involved. When consumers want what's real, here it is, get this, listen. When consumers want what's real, the management of customer perception of authenticity becomes the primary new source of competitive advantage, the new business imperative. Wow. Managing, notice what's being, uh, notice what's being sold there. Not, not merely becoming authentic, but the management of 
the customer perception of authenticity. So now authenticity is a perception to manage. Wow. It's books like this that keep guys like me in business, right? Authenticity now is a new means of evaluating singers and politicians and businesses and products. And yes, even churches and pastors, yes. Now, I mean, so this idea of managing customer perception, can you see how many disastrous turns this has the potential to take? Think about it. The moment we start evaluating levels of authenticity, then authenticity becomes a contest. And those who participate in the contest start competing against one another to see who is more authentic. But when we start competing against each other to see who's more authentic, we just become bigger phonies than we were before. And why? Because the moment you try to be authentic, you cease to be authentic. Because authenticity is not a procedure. It's a byproduct. It's the fruit of something deeper that's going on. That leads us to our scripture today in the New Testament uh, book of First Thessalonians. We're in a series called The Power of Encouragement. And today we're going to look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 12. You'll find, first, we're not, uh, no PowerPoint today because we're going vintage. Okay? Because we want to be authentic. All right? Are you feeling that this is authentic now? Because I need to manage that. Anyway, he cynically said. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. You'll find that on page 986 of your church Bibles. And we'd love... We would love it if you do not have a copy of God's Word uh, to call your own. Please take the copy in front of the, uh, in the pouch in front of you. Someone was asking me last week, I have a friend I'm wanting to invite to church. They don't have a Bible. I said, get back into the worship center and grab a Bible and give it to your friend. Tell them it's a gift from, from yourself and, and your church family. So if you don't have a copy of God's Word, we want you to have it. And you'll find 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 12 on page 986. Paul writes, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know... We had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. And here's here's where Paul gets us into authenticity. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves 
because you had become very dear to us. But you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers, for you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This is God's word. These verses really tackle the question, what kind of a Christian do I need to be so that others will believe what I have to say about Christ? And the answer is, you need to be an authentic Christian. Is there any other kind? Authenticity. So as we look at these verses here this morning in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, I I want to touch on three questions. And the first is, just what is authenticity according to these verses? We think we might know what it is or we have a picture of what it is in our mind, but let's let's make sure we get our definition straight. How, how, How do we understand what authenticity is based on these verses? That's question number one. Second question is this. Why did Paul have to remind the Thessalonians how authentic he was? Why did he have to do that? And then thirdly, what produces authenticity? If authenticity is something to be rendered, who who is the renderer? Who renders authenticity? Those, Those are the questions that we'll be talking about this morning, the questions that are on your outline that you received when you came in. Let's start with question number one. Let's define the term authenticity. What is gospel authenticity? Now, our culture has an understanding of authenticity uh, that has to do with phrases like, well, you just got to be yourself, or you just got to be true to your heart, or be true to yourself, or be comfortable in your own skin, or just say what's on your mind, or just express yourself, or just share your heart. And, And while that's not entirely off, here's the challenge that I have with that. You know, um, the last time I shared my unfiltered heart, the last time I just said what was on my mind, the last time I just felt really comfortable just letting it all out with my wife, I hurt her feelings. See? So, you know, Paul's authenticity, Paul's authenticity uh, was a little deeper than that. Paul's authenticity came from the core conviction in his life that all that he did, he did before an audience of one. An audience of one. I get that when I read verse 4. He says, we have been approved by God. We speak not to please men, but to please who? God, who tests our hearts. So, so Christian authenticity, gospel authenticity is the fruit of or it's the byproduct or the result of a man or woman or community of God who lives with the conviction that ultimately, ultimately, there's only one person in life to please. Just one. 
I think I do all of us a disservice here um, when I come to this pulpit with the understanding that you, the congregation, are the audience. And we, as a congregation, do ourselves a disservice when we come into this worship gathering under the assumption that the congregation is the audience. Soren Kierkegaard was a philosopher and theologian. He once said, most have the mistaken notion that the sermon is a play written by God, performed by the preacher, and observed by the congregation. In reality, it is much more. The preacher is the playwright. The congregation is the company of actors. And God is the audience. Gospel authenticity is the fruit of a life lived before an audience of one. A life that wants to please God above all. Let me put it this way. Gospel authenticity is what my life looks like when desiring God matters most. There it is. Gospel authenticity is what my life looks like when desiring God. It's not just a have to please God as if he's a taskmaster. It's a want to. God, I want to please you more than anyone else. And when that becomes a part of my life from the inside out, I... Ah, I grow in the art of losing myself in giving you praise. Gospel authenticity, what my life looks like when desiring God matters most. That's a good definition, I think, that Paul gives us from 1 Thessalonians 2. But this leads to question number two that I said I wanted us to talk about, and it's this. Why would Paul feel the need to remind the Thessalonian church of his gospel authenticity? Why would he need to do that? I mean, think about it for a minute. If I have to remind you that I'm authentic, am I? (laughs) Why would Paul have to jog their memory about his gospel? What what occasion would prompt that? Well, the the occasion was that Paul was responding to a smear campaign by certain enemies of the cross. We get this when we look back at the book of Acts. You can... You can kind of correlate the book of Acts with Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. In Acts chapter 17, certain Hebrews in Thessalonica grew jealous that Paul had been influencing so many for Christ, they accused him of treason against the Roman government by advocating another king, King Jesus, over Caesar. And the city officials in Thessalonica, they put out an all-points bulletin for Paul and his ministry companion, Silas. And when they could not find them, they went on a hunt for Jason, who was a believer in the church there. And the church met at his home. And they uh, uh, arrested Jason, and they forced him to post a bond, put up a chunk of money to ensure peace. Because, because the city officials in the free city of Thessalonica did not want um, Rome to question their loyalty. So once Paul and Silas left, the very enemies of the cross who had run them out of town began to criticize them back home saying, well, if he was a true leader, he never would have left in the first place. See? 
That you run him out of town, and then after they leave, they say, well, they never should have left him in the first. Which means, you know, he was just in it for the money or the power or the attention. He's more interested in his life than your welfare. Come on back to the fold. Ignore this fly-by-night con artist. Let's get back to where we were before they came. And in 1 Thessalonians, see, Paul responds to that smear campaign. He patiently and passionately reasons and reminds them, church, Jesus is real, I'm real, your faith is for real, you're not crazy. Five times, did you see this here in these verses? Five times Paul uses some variation of the phrase, you yourselves know, or as you know, or you remember. It shows up in verse 1, verse 2, verse 5, verse 9, verse 11. Paul says, let's go back to the beginning. You yourselves know about our coming. Circle that word. It's an important word. I'll talk about it later. You know about our coming. You know what happened to us in Philippi, verse 2. You know how the Roman officials in Philippi violated our civil rights as citizens of Rome. You know how we baptized Lydia and the Philippian jailer and his household and the church that began meeting at her home. You know about the church we started there. And you know that when we arrived in Thessalonica, our backs were still swollen from the beating that took place in Philippi. But that did not silence us from sharing the gospel with you. Verse 2, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Paul is pushing back. He's making sure that this newly formed church remembers the importance of what had happened in that ministry season uh, as brief as it was with them. Paul says, look, if I were doing this for any other reason than to please God, how could I endure such harsh persecution. And in verses three through six, Paul reminds them of what he didn't do. We didn't deceive you or defraud you. We didn't come to get glory from you or to to please you in any way, shape, or form. We didn't come with flattering speech. We didn't speak in a way to get you to give us money or anything else. We didn't give you anything that we thought you might want in order to get what we felt we wanted. We didn't do that. Verse 5, we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. Paul links flattery with greed. You see that? Why does he do that? Well, we need to go back into their world for just a moment. So let's just take a time warp here for a minute, all right? Paul wrote this letter around the year A.D. 50. If you lived in Thessalonica in the year A.D. 50, what would your life be like? What would you do after work when you got home after dinner? Remember, there's no TV, no Internet, no Netflix, no Blu-ray, no online social media, none of that. What would you do? What would you do? Well, you could go to the theater at amphitheaters, all across the Roman Empire. And, and if you went to the theater, you might see a dramatic performance. You might, you might go to the lecture hall. You might, you might hear of speakers and lecturers and professional public orators, not quite unlike the professional speakers' circuits of today who would come into town and provide some semblance of entertainment 
But, but in addition to providing some semblance of entertainment, they, they would also recruit students in their craft of oratory, and these students would pay these speakers hefty fees to learn the art and craft of public speaking. So it was almost a hybrid between acting and motivational speaking. And some of these orators took on the status of a rock star, country music star, American Idol star status. And so they're coming, and that's the same kind of word that Paul uses here. They're coming into this new city would be quite a spectacle because crowds would come to welcome these rock star orators. And there was quite a competition. Uh, imagine for just a moment if, you know, Florida Georgia Line, Taylor Swift, Luke Bryan, Carrie Underwood, Garth Brooks, and the band Perry all wanted to come to town at the same time and all wanted to perform at the State Farm Center. All of them there at the same time. Be quite a competition for the space. And there might be some, uh, you know, cutthroat going on. And that's exactly what happened in Paul's world. In fact, one, one of a particular rock star orator uh, of the day, a guy by the name of Aristides, tells about a competing orator from Egypt who came to town at the same time, and Aristides disses him by referring to him as a, a, a certain little Egyptian. That's how he referred to him. So Aristides comes into town and People just, and and he's got this advanced team that puts together this highly detailed event just the way he wanted. And three days before the event, this certain little Egyptian showed up and tried to undercut Aristides with his own performance on the same day. Well, not to be outdone, Aristides countered with a special matinee performance at 10 a.m. It was cutthroat. And one of the features was improvisation. These speakers were improvisational speakers. So the speaker would come, and he would give kind of a a speech before the speech to endear himself to the crowd, try to get to know and read the crowd. And then, as a part of the improvisation, he would say to the speakers, uh, he would say to the the audience, he would say, now someone pick a topic. Someone, any topic, any topic. It would be like me standing up here saying, "Um, pick a Bible character. Wayne, give me a Bible character. Moses. And then for the next hour, I just drone on and on and on about Moses. And you go, wow, wow, phenomenal. Wow. That that sort of thing went on. And then there's 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 almost magical power, isn't there? in the ability to speak extemporaneously and fluently and eloquently and almost as if you've prepared the whole thing. It doesn't matter what I say about Moses. It's how I said it about Moses. They make movies like that these days, don't they? Yeah. My goodness. And that kind of power, the audience kind of gets enamored with that, 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 that sort of presentation, and then, of course, the assumption is because this person looks the way this per- speaks the way they speak on stage, then they must be gifted and competent in every other area of their life. And then after the performance, the people would come up to the speaker and ooh and ah, 
And the speaker then would, ah, see, the performance never ended for the speaker because the speaker would then turn his sights onto the person who was ooing and aahing, and the orator would then begin to flatter the person. And in Rome, first century, it was a patronage culture. That is to say, um, some of these performers had sponsors. uh, Think PGA. And these companies, you know, sponsors, patrons, well, see, you know, they would support the person's tour, but in return, the person then had to advertise this, this, the honor of the patron. You, you get my drift here? That's what's going on. Well, you can see how this type of a, you know, this type of an arrangement could just go really bad in a sinful, broken, fallen world. You can see the kind of competition that would undercut people. That was the world that Paul came to. So when the apostle Paul, in fact, um, uh, (laughs) one critic of this called these orators gorgeous peacocks lifted on the wings of glory and their disciples. And another critic, a guy by the name of Philo, who was a Jewish philosopher and who died the very year Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians, Philo made this comment. City after city ran after these orators and the whole world was honoring them. So Paul then speaks of his coming, same word. But he uses the same word in the exact opposite way because he says, we we didn't desire a professional relationship with you. We didn't desire an on-stage relationship with you. You know, we just wanted to share our very lives because we actually love you and care about you. And in verses 7 through 12, Paul says, you know how we were among you. You know how we treated you. We, we were like parents to you. Verse 7 says, Paul says, I was not just like a mother to you. I was like a nursing mother holding and cradling. Uh, you as a, a nursing mother would hold and cradle a baby close to her breast, feeding, loving, cherishing, adoring. And then later on, Paul says, I'm like a father to you, coaching, instructing, shaping, encouraging the will. And also touching upon the heart and to avoid any connection to the professional orators of his day Paul opted out of receiving any financial support from believers while he was with them now Paul would receive support from a church where he had previously come and gone i.e. Philippi but he did not want to be a financial burden to the very location where he was trying to plant a church. So he worked. He was a leather worker, stitching and, 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 and cutting and shaping and fashioning. Verses 9 and 10, you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden. That means a financial burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses and God also. How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. The the point is this. When they saw his life and his work ethic and his work product and his work attitude, that kind of an ethic simply magnified and amplified the message of the gospel. 
Paul says, while others, might, while others might come to please the crowds or flatter the crowds or seek glory from the crowds or fleece the crowds, when I came to you, I came to serve you before an audience of one. And what was my goal? What was, what's my motive? What do I want? Verse 12, that's what I want. I want you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Paul says, the only thing I want of you is that you make much of God in your life. The only thing I want of you is that you desire God. I want you to live and act like the child of God you have become. I want there to be a quality in your life that would make others conclude that you in fact know God and walk with God and that you, des- that you desire most God. And when that desire lives in your life, you are on the path to gospel authenticity. Gospel authenticity, what my life looks like when desiring God matters most. Charlie Parker was a jazz saxophonist from 1920 to 1955. And he said what I've been trying to say this way. If you don't live it, it won't come out of your horn Well, Paul lived it, and so did the Thessalonians. Look at verse 13. We also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, for you suffered You suffered. Think about it. These believers knew that when they converted to Christ, they would be targets. And they still converted. And why? Well, maybe because they realized that they were finally hearing true truth. Maybe it's because they finally realized that they didn't have to play before all the other audiences. Maybe they realized how exhausting it is to try to play before multiple audiences. Maybe they were just fatigued at trying to, verse 4, please man. Maybe they finally realized that seeking glory from people is a back-breaking, no, worse than that, a spirit-breaking task of never enough, never enough, never enough, never enough. But But that when you perform before an audience of one, you have one who says, enough, that you're enough. And why? And why? That leads us to the third question. What produces authenticity? See, the temptation in a message like this, church, is uh, to come to this point right here and say, okay, church, Paul was authentic. The Thessalonians are authentic. You be authentic right now. Come on, get to it. Well, that's not good news. Give me some good news, Randy. Okay, the gospel of God is what produces authenticity in your life. The gospel of God, verse 8. The gospel of God is at work in you who believe, verse 13. You see, authenticity comes as we desire God, and we desire God working into our lives. And do you know why we can even desire God first? Actually, we don't desire him first. He desires us first. And then we desire him. We love because he first loved us. 
He works in us. He produces through us what we cannot produce on our own. The gospel of God is the story of how God meets our rebellion with his rescue. It's how God meets our sin with his salvation. It's how God meets our guilt with his grace and our badness with his goodness. The gospel of God is not about the work of the redeemed, but the work of the redeemer. The gospel of, the gospel of God is not a recipe book for Christian living. Listen, the Bible is not a recipe book for Christian living. The Bible is a revelation book about Jesus, who is the answer to our unchristian living. The gospel of God announces that because Jesus was strong for you, you're free to be weak. Because Jesus won for you, you're free to lose. Because Jesus was someone, you're free to be no one. Because Jesus was extraordinary, you're free to be ordinary. Because Jesus succeeded for you, you're free to fail. Church, there are only sinners in this room. The gospel of God is this. God has a demand, be righteous. God has a diagnosis, no one is righteous. God has a deliverance. Jesus is our righteousness. And once this news grips your heart, once it gets into your life, it will, it will come out of your horn. And it changes everything. It frees you from this paralyzing need to be perfect. It frees you from having to hold it all together. The gospel, the gospel of God is not too good to be true. It is true. It's the truest truth in the entire universe. God loves us independently of what we may or may not bring to the table. There's no strings attached, no ifs, ands, or buts, no qualifiers, no conditions, no need for balance, no broccoli in sight. Grace is the most dangerous, expectation-wrecking, smile-creating, counterintuitive reality there is. You don't have to pretend anymore. You don't have to try to concoct an image. You don't have to grow weary trying to play before multiple audiences. Life gets simple. You just play before one. And in place of the exhaustion of the many, you receive the energy from the one. Spirit-empowered energy to desire God. And with that desire comes a life, church family, that is truly authentic. Amen. Oh God, thank you for your authentic producing gospel of grace. We pray that you be pleased. with what you see, not just in our individual lives, but in the life of this church family. Take the burden off of us, Lord. We believe, help our unbelief. Thank you. Thank you that your love never fails. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for the life-changing power of Christ. In whose name we pray.